I occasionally put on some freelancer hats, hats that do not have the Faith Life logo on them, and the results of my biggest writing job ever just hit Christian schools this year. It's a Bible textbook for middle schoolers put out by a major Christian publisher called Basics for a Biblical Worldview. I'm not here to advertise it to you, though of course I'd love for it to benefit your middle schoolers. My own sixth grader is reading it now and he says he likes it. I am here to make a comment about one of the biggest things I learned from the experience of writing this book. You see, a full six years before that, I wrote another bigger worldview textbook, this one for 12th graders, Biblical Worldview Creation Fall Redemption. This book is available in Logos and a lot of Logos users actually have it because it was in base packages a few releases ago. But during the time, the years that elapsed between the planning of that bigger book for older kids and the planning of the next one for middle schoolers, something happened in American or perhaps Western culture. And I noticed that the planners of the second book noticed this thing. They saw that I needed to have a whole unit in this new book about something I didn't even touch on in the first book. That was identity. I needed to answer the question, who am I for sixth graders? And of course, I needed to answer it from the Bible, from scripture. My guest on the Bible Study Magazine podcast today came to a key crisis moment in his life, even as an adult, when he had to answer that question, a question, who am I? What is my identity? And because he was an evangelical biblical scholar and theologian, he, of course, answered it from scripture. He ultimately produced Known by God, a biblical theology of personal identity, part of Jonathan Lundy's Biblical Theology for Life series that we've already talked about. We've had Lundy on the podcast. Quite recently, he also published a book with Crossway that is even more accessible. I should say it's coming out in May, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer. He's also written other books of biblical theology, and because this third season of the BSM podcast is dedicated to biblical theology, I invited him to be interviewed and to share his wisdom about biblical theology as well as specifically a biblical theology of identity. Dr. Brian Rosner, it is really my privilege to have you join us on the Bible Study Magazine podcast. Could you just start by telling us how you serve the body of Christ? Uh, thanks so much, Mark. It's great to be with you and with those who are listening or watching. Um, well, as you mentioned, I'm a biblical scholar. Um, my work has been mainly in three places to date. Uh, at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. So I did my doctorate in Cambridge. My first uh, work as a scholar was at, at Aberdeen. And then at Moore College in Sydney. And for the last nine and a half years, I've been at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia, as the principal. Uh, in American terms, it's kind of president, uh, provost. Um, uh, juggling is my main skill, you might say. Uh, lots of things on the go. But I still teach New Testament. And as you mentioned, I have a, a keen interest in biblical theology. Um, other things I'm doing to serve the body of Christ? Well, I'm an ordinary Christian. That's the other thing to say. So I'm part of a local church setting. As it turns out, my wife is a minister, the associate minister in the church I attend. And um, I've been involved with children's work and uh, uh, youth ministry. I, I had a couple of years working for the Australian equivalent of Campus Crusade for Christ. So I've had a lifetime um, commitment to uh, discipling other people, I guess would be the way to say it. I've had, you know, I, I have a, a um, relationships with both younger and older men uh, that I would meet with occasionally and regularly and uh, to encourage each other in the gospel. Finally, I'm interested in how the grace of God teaches us to live in our day. And uh, I'm part of what's called the Centre for Public Christianity, in Sydney, Australia. Um, I publish a few articles each year in mainstream media on topics, uh, most recently, of course, on identity. Excellent. You know, you are coming to us from Australia, and now I say Australia rather than Australia because I went there a couple of years ago and I was schooled in this. I could never quite get the accent down. I really thank you, however, for clarifying what a principle is in Australia because when I hear that, I literally, this is not uh, a joke, I'm not making this up, my mind goes right to the paddle hanging on the wall behind Mr. Bowman's desk, the principal of my Christian school back in what historians call the 1980s. So presumably you don't have to use corporal punishment 
in your job as principal of Ridley College. I won't even make you answer that question. Now, <laughs> you are the final guest on the third season of the podcast, Dr. Rosner. And I have to say this too, before the, get, before the interview started, you asked me to call you Brian. And I said, I'm sorry, my dad drummed it into me with the threat maybe of that same paddle uh, that I have to say, sir, to men who are older than me. So you graciously are allowing me to call you Dr. Rosner. Dr. Rosner, I have asked every single guest, what is biblical theology? But I've never asked the editor of the new dictionary of biblical theology, who himself wrote the opening essay titled Biblical Theology. Now I get that privilege. So, Dr. Rosner, what is biblical theology? That's a good question. And uh, obviously students ask it regularly. I think there are several different answers. Uh, so thinking of how others have answered it, I like Francis Watson's definition that biblical theology is what happens when we take down the barriers between the disciplines of Old Testament, New Testament, systematic theology, and Christian ethics. Uh, Peter Stuhlmacher has my favorite definition. Biblical theology is reading the Bible as it wants to be read. And uh, um, that gets us close to the idea. Uh, you mentioned the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Uh, my definition there, which I can quote, it happens to be in front of me. I feel like a, a, a master chef on a, a cooking program. Here's one I prepared earlier. Um, I, there I define it as proceeding with historical and literary sensitivity. So that's important, I think. Biblical theology treats the documents of the New Testament as, as they are in a particular context and setting uh, with sensitivity to literary uh, features and genre and so on. It seeks to analyze and synthesize the Bible's teaching about God and his relations to the world on its own terms. And I think that's very important. So one difference with other disciplines is that biblical theology tries to use the language and terms of the Bible. So rather than imposing, and this is a biblical theologian's prejudice against systematicians, uh, imposing other categories, uh, what biblical theology tries to do is to use the language and terms of the Bible but you maintain sight of the Bible's overarching narrative and Christocentric focus. A shorthand definition of that would be to say that biblical theology is backstory plus story arc. So it's basically recognizing that uh, each of the books of the Bible comes in a context in the flow of the big story of the Bible or the meta narrative, if you want to call it that. And really to understand that book, what it contributes to the whole Bible and what the whole Bible contributes to that book, you need to look at the backstory, what, what's happened before, what's led up to it, and also the story arc, where is it heading? Now, backstory and story arc are terms used in, uh, um, in, in narrative work, um, either on television, movies, books. So, for example, if you read the fourth book of Harry Potter, the backstory is the first three books, and the story arc is where we're heading. Or if you're watching a television series, sometimes they'll say previously on, and they'll tell you what's happened before. And the, the writers have in mind some kind of climax to the story, either a wedding or a car crash or something like that. So the Bible's the same thing. It's reading the Bible as it wants to be read, looking at the whole thing on its own terms and taking into consideration what I'm calling backstory and story arc. That's super helpful. You know, I've, I've had so many definitions here of biblical theology, and I actually wanted to ask this same question to every guest, in part because I've long felt that biblical theology is caught as much as taught. And so adding in all the descriptors that everybody has used, I think is rather than confusing, actually helpful. I just had to listen to the way biblical theologians talk about the Bible for a while before it started to click with me. I was kind of slow in understanding this. I myself, as I said, have written two books on worldview, and the whole time I was working on them, I knew I was employing a buzzword of the moment, worldview, that might actually end up shortening the shelf life of my work. I was trying in part to use the buzzword's popularity as a chance to just you know do some good Bible teaching. Don't get me wrong, I and my team for those books, we worked hard to define the concept of worldview in a biblical way, but there's no usage in the Bible of the word worldview or any equivalent term to appeal to or be guided by. So we were kind of free to shape the concept on our own. Now, 
I'm not being cynical, I'm really asking, is it possible that as biblical theology has grown in cachet, people have rushed to apply the label to work that isn't really biblical theology, that you know they shape the concept in their own way because there's no definition of biblical theology in some appendix after Revelation? What would you say? Well, um, the definition I gave you is really what might be called a salvation historical definition. There are other approaches. Um, James Barr has a more historical approach. Uh, and biblical theology really overlaps with several other disciplines. So uh, canonical interpretation, theological interpretation, and systematic theology. Now, in terms of can we find the terms that we're looking for when we're studying a topic, Uh, in the Bible, and if we can't, does that mean it's not a topic for biblical theology? I'd say no, and identity is actually a good example on that score. So you won't find the the word identity or personal identity anywhere in English versions of the Bible that I've looked at, Uh, but I think you could, if you like, and principles have this uh, prerogative, I think, you could insert it in certain places. So um, Tim Keller, for example, translates a verse in the Psalms, as the uh, the law of the Lord, I think it's from Psalm 119, refreshes my true identity. And uh, you could translate Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, where he says, your life consists of uh, more than food and your body more than clothing, as your identity consists of those Interesting. things. Yeah, and then in other places uh, where Paul talks about your life is hidden with Christ in God, beautiful verse in Colossians 3, Again, you, you could legitimately translate, I think, uh, that verse as your identity, your true identity um, is hidden with Christ in God. And that's a beautiful couple of verses there because it sets an individual's identity, a, a, a Christian's identity in the life story of Jesus Christ. It says that you died with Christ and when he is revealed, you'll be revealed as one of God's children. I have to ask an additional hard question that, like Mr. Collins introducing himself to Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice, may be impertinent, but you said in one of your books that Aussies like to rib each other, and I have been to Australia, so that ought to count for something. How was your work on identity, which I found to be super helpful? How was it, though, a biblical theology? I read what you wrote about culture and race as aspects of identity, for example, and you really adroitly canvassed the Bible's teaching on those topics. I was in full agreement with what you wrote, found it to be insightful. But I did wonder, at least at that point in the book, okay, where's the biblical theology angle? What makes this biblical theology? I really do want to understand. So there's a, a, there are a number of books being written on personal identity and the topic of identity in our day from theologians and from cultural commentators. And it is interesting that the topic has risen to prominence in uh, probably the last 50 years. So you can do an n-gram search on Google and see where the words identity formation and personal identity and be yourself, all those kind of terms which are so common in our day, start to appear in English literature. And it's only in the last 50 years that they've become very common. So I think this is typical of, uh, of, of Christians throughout the ages. We come across a challenge in our own setting and context, and then hopefully we turn to the Bible. And, and this is one of the wonderful things about the Bible. It, you find it actually addresses these topics uh, very helpfully and profoundly. So uh, coming back to the topic of identity, as it turns out, Many of the terms for uh, what we'd call anthropology, what makes up a human being, body, soul, spirit, mind, heart, actually derive from uh, from the Bible. In, in Western culture, we pick those terms up from biblical revelation. Uh, Romans 12 verse 3 is one of my favorite texts on this topic, where it says, uh, think about yourself with sober judgment. So there is a sense in which the Bible expects us to think about our identities. Uh, The Bible, again, addresses uh, our deepest desires and yearnings, our frustrations, our most painful sorrows, Uh, includes every age group, rich, poor, happy, sad, young, old. Um, It uh, it, it might, you might say the Bible has high emotional intelligence. 
So I love the way Paul says, fathers, don't exasperate your children. And uh, just the other night, my, my son kind of said those very words to me that uh, I was exasperating him. Uh, it says to those showing hospitality not to grumble, those in dispute not to judge or despise those against their uh, those uh, they're interacting with. So I think the Bible actually does address these issues quite profoundly. I mean, on the topic of identity, um, uh, the image of God has always been seen by theologians as fundamental to human identity. But uh, what I found is that there are several interconnected ideas that really give us an insight into what the Bible thinks about human and then ultimately Christian identity. And one of them is this idea of being known by God. And at that point, we have to distinguish being known by God from being known about. So omniscience is not what we're talking about there. We're talking about personal knowledge. And there are several texts that make this very clear. Jesus says in some of the frightening last judgment speeches in the synoptics to those who are condemned, I never knew you. And Paul famously says in Galatians 4 uh, to the Galatian Christians, at one time you didn't know God, now you do know God. Then he has this wonderful little rider, or rather you're known by God. And I think the notion of personal knowledge, intimate personal knowledge, in these texts is connected with our adoption into the family of God. So in Galatians 4, the previous context, going back to the last verses of Galatians 3, it's all about being uh, children of God, uh, saying Abba, Father, and uh, that uh, wonderful um, status and experience of being a child of God then is connected with being chosen by God and also with being known by God. So in short, just to sum up, I think the topic of identity, the more you dig, um, every page of the Bible seems to have something to say about human identity. And it's a lens which has only been necessary in the last 50 years. It's, it, you might call it an implicit doctrine it, it, it's, it, or a derivative one. There's, there's no chapter which addresses explicitly the topic of personal identity. But on the other hand, almost every page of the Bible says something which pertains to the human condition. There were, you know, probably 10 or 20 gallons of wisdom, or shall I say leaders <laughs> of wisdom in that response. I really appreciated that. And I have one little factoid to mention before saying something else nice about your response. You mentioned the, the little phrase that we hear all of the time in at least American entertainment, be yourself. Like this is the profound advice that people are given in nearly every single Disney movie. And whereas, you know, sometimes there, you do need to be told the things that you're wanting to do, that you're called to do by the Lord are more important than whatever expectations your parents had. Okay, that's advice that some people perhaps need to hear at times, but it's the overriding advice of our culture to everyone in every situation. And I happen to listen to John McWhorter, uh, American linguist, Columbia University professor. I've actually met him super intelligent guy, and he loves the, the history of language change like I do. And he discovered that that little phrase, be yourself, used to mean like back in the 1920s, oh, go jump in a lake. Oh, go be yourself. Like, get out of my face. Um, interesting little factoid there. I had to insert that somehow. I, I wanted to make the comment here. I've actually been working for a while uh, in various venues, including Bible Study Magazine, to demonstrate that the world of evangelical, academic, biblical scholarship is one that, you know, truly motivated students of the Bible should be jumping into, that they should be biting into. And some of them are nervous about this, you know, all these intellectual elites and they're going to be arrogant and, you know, they're going to be up in their ivory towers. I just wanted to point out to anybody who feels like that who's listening to this, did you hear how many Bible verses Dr. Rosener just cited? Uh, yes, he maybe had some time to prepare, you know, like a chef, but the, he was just rattling them off and he's using them to answer questions that we are bringing to the Bible from our current culture. I really appreciated that. That leads me to a question for you, Dr. Rosner. You mentioned uh, systematic theology earlier. 
traditionally systematic theology and biblical theology are held as distinct. You said you could possibly see biblical theology, I'm not quite sure how you put it, uh, I, I don't know, overarching above systematic theology? Not sure, you can clarify there, but how would systematic theology and biblical theology and your understanding of those disciplines, how would they differ in addressing identity? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And um, sometimes what I tell my students is that uh, um, uh, systematic theology is basically for people who are smarter than me. So systematic theology has to use biblical theology and exegesis, but it also includes philosophy, um, church history, uh, theological um, um, uh, interpretation through the ages. So what, what's sometimes called the history of effects. And then, of course, address culture in the present. Uh, so there needs to be a very broad understanding. Sometimes you divide people, and I ask this in classes sometimes, are you a big picture person or a details person? The systematicians tend to be the big picture people, and the exegesis people tend to be the details. And then I say rather cheekily that I'm both, uh, because I have an interest in both. Uh, but the truth is, I think systematic theology is about the contemporary articulation of Christian doctrine and thought, and that's really the focus. So it's not as concerned to use, for example, the terms of the Bible necessarily. It, it's happy to bring uh, other terms in that will help to synthesize the Bible's teaching on a particular topic. Now, having said all that, uh, Known by God was published a few years ago, and uh, there was a systematician who reviewed the book uh, positively, I'm glad to say, and he said he doesn't see why what I was doing can't be classified as systematic theology. So I think uh, maybe I, I kind of did some trespassing there and I moved out of my field to some extent. I think the book is fundamentally biblical theology, but it, it, it's fair to say that I do deal with uh, contemporary issues. And I'm certainly fascinated, Mark, to hear you say that be yourself meant something different in the past, just kept coming back to identity there. Um, what I, what I try and do in the Crossway book coming out in May, How to Find Yourself, Why Looking Inward is Not the Answer, is to express the cultural moment more directly. So that book is probably more systematic theology. It, it's very accessible, uh, so it, it's, it's not a technical book, and it deals with exactly what you've just spoken about, namely that in our day it's very often uh, very common that we hear the term um, uh, be yourself, that advice. We used to hear be true to yourself. Um, and I think now be yourself is more common. As it turns out, yesterday was Australia Day, um, as or as the some Australians pronounce it, Australia Day. And uh, uh, we have an Australian of the Year announced every year. And this year's Australian of the Year is a disabled tennis player who's done some wonderful things for disability causes uh, throughout his life, Dylan Alcott. And the headline was, his advice is, you guessed it, be yourself. Yeah. So I think just briefly on that topic, I think be yourself is good advice at one level, but certainly it can be taken too far. So be yourself, the notion of expressive individualism, find yourself by looking inward and then live accordingly, um, has the advantage of being authentic to yourself. Uh, it also tends to be more inclusive in society. So there isn't that conformity also that you, you spoke of a moment ago, but there are huge and serious setbacks with the movement, I think. And it comes with a narrative of uh, uh, personal freedom trumping everything and the need to celebrate everyone's identity regardless of what they really like. I, I like what Francis Fukuyama says that uh, um, if, if, uh, if you're going to be true to yourself, maybe I'm, I'm a greedy workaholic and I'm really just a nasty person. So being true to myself is not a very good idea. So again, I think the Bible tells us, just to kind of preempt a little bit of the book coming out in May, that there are other places to look. And this is true, actually, of the human condition generally. So we look around to our relationships. We're known by being known by others, ultimately by God. And then our identities are really our life stories. But the really odd thing about the Christian believer's life story is that the ultimate template for our life stories is the life story of Jesus Christ. As I mentioned earlier with Colossians 3, 
the defining moment of our lives as believers is dying to self when Jesus died on the cross. And then uh, the ultimate destiny for us, the, the end of our stories, if you like, is uh, um, being revealed as the children of God when the Lord Jesus returns. And in the meantime, the cross really should define our behavior as well. So that uh, act of self-giving love is meant to be our signature move throughout our lives. Now, that doesn't uh, obliterate the individuality and distinctiveness, particularities in our lives. You know, I'm a white male in my early 60s um, from Australia, etc. But it will it will affect the kind of white male I am, the kind of father, friend, husband, teacher that I am, or it hopefully will affect those things. If I stay on the script, if you like, with, with that life story. Right. Staying on the script is kind of a biblical theology metaphor because the mm. it's the meta-narrative of the Bible that is my worldview. That, that book, Known by God, it really the central insight of just using that verse as the title to address the topic of identity, that in itself, you know, as they say, is worth the price of the book. You can get that much on Amazon or, of course, logos.com. I encourage people to get the book. One reason I encourage people to get the book is, and I actually relied on it. I want to say, I wanted to say thank you to you. I relied on your work very heavily for some talks I gave on identity at the Church of a Friend in Ohio some months ago. I just found it to be so helpful and so warm-hearted, just like the other books that I've read in the Biblical Theology for Life series that Jonathan Lundy, who's been on the podcast, actually edited, you know, there's a warmth, there's a personality in both of those books that I don't always see in evangelical academic biblical studies work. I was just really pleased and edified. I, I wondered, was that intentional? Was it easy or hard? Oh, it was very difficult, actually. So I was trained as a biblical scholar in the 80s, and the paradigm then was still pretty much modernist, if you want to put it that way. Uh, you would approach the text with a dispassionate neutrality and objectivity. And uh, postmodernism has come along and said, well, everyone comes with a pre-understanding. Everyone has an agenda. And that, of course, can be taken way too far. But I do think there is a sense in which um, when I write um, exegesis or biblical theology, I should write as a Christian. And, and that's, that's actually the way in which the Bible, just coming back to Schulmacher's definition, wants to be read. The Bible has an intended audience, and the intended audience is those who've received the apostolic message and are attempting to live uh, the way of the Lord Jesus. Yes, so um, I had several editors along the way, Jonathan also, but I uh, had some friends push me into it. I remember Jonathan uh, initially had my own story in the book as a sidebar. Jonathan said, I, you know, you have to start with this. So it's, I've gone kicking and screaming, but the truth is the topic of personal identity, to state the, the, the obvious, is a very personal topic. And if you want readers to engage with the topic, in the way that's best, namely thinking about themselves, then you really have to reveal something about yourself. So, so when I deal with uh, um, age and gender and all those kind of things, um, I, I try and just reflect briefly on, on those topics. Um, the reluctance is in part not wanting to seem egotistical or arrogant or, or self-focused, but, but you're certainly right. People have appreciated the, the more personal, intimate parts of the book. The book, as you know, Mark, opens with a very painful memory, uh, which I think uh, means that um, uh, people can connect with that. And as it turns out, the topic of identity has become more important for people over the whole lifespan. So the narrative used to be that you were given your identity um, as a teenager as a child, and then as a teenager, you kind of revised it, rejected it, or accepted it. And then that would be you for the rest of your life, unless you had a midlife crisis and bought a red uh, uh, Kawasaki bike or did something ridiculous. And then you would just retire and die not long after. But these days, people ironically are being told you have to find yourself, but it's actually more difficult to find yourself than ever before. So there's this uh, cruel irony, if you like, in the postmodern world where identity is um, a, a central topic in almost every discussion. 
And yet many people find it difficult. We have, we have a, a much less stable and satisfying sense of self than we've ever had, I think, in human history. So the West is in a bit of an odd situation at the moment. I think Kevin Van Hooser says that the West is suffering from an identity crisis. I call it identity angst. And as I said earlier, I, I, I was just uh, so encouraged and delighted to find that the Bible addresses these topics so profoundly and, and helpfully. It does. And this is coming out in your more off-the-cuff comments even. You've clearly done a great deal of deep thinking about this topic. And I have to imagine that evangelism opportunities or, you know, sort of university talks would be a great place for this. I'm just curious, have, have you had that opportunity? Have you sort of tested this not only with Christians, but even with any non-Christians? Uh well, I have, as it turns out. So the book coming out in May, How to Find Yourself, started out at some lectures at a university in Sydney, the University of New South Wales, at a place called New College. So they have four lectures a year from someone who addresses a contemporary subject from a Christian point of view. That was a few years ago now. Uh, but ab absolutely, yes. I found people who um, were not believers connecting very well with many of the ideas. And sometimes it's ideas you wouldn't expect. So the idea of finding your identity in a defining moment before you were born, namely the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, one fellow uh, came up to me after one of the lectures and said that the defining moment in his life was being abused as a child. Such, such a, a, a terribly sad um, thing to say. And he said he really liked the idea that that um, he could move on from that to some extent by seeing himself as defined in other terms. So I think, um, yes, I think there's there's great opportunity. And I think Christians, the evangelists and uh, um, Christian writers should be using the language of expressive individualism, but baptizing it. So instead of saying, be true to yourself, we can be saying, be true to your true self and then explain who you really are. And instead of saying, you do you, which is another way of saying, be yourself, we could be saying, uh, you should do the new you. And uh, I think uh, this is one of the values of Christian doctrine generally. It's not just about knowing who God is, but knowing who we are and then acting accordingly. So I think there are great opportunities with expressive individualism in, in, in the uh, air, as it is so much today, for Christians to um, obviously not adopt the central ideas and values uncritically, but to put uh, in in terms that are readily understandable in our day, um, uh, expositions of the gospel and Christian teaching uh, that will connect more readily with people um, in, in our world. One of the great privileges of being in a college like mine is that I get to hang out with young people. And uh, to understand them, uh, I just have to uh, do my best to connect with their world. So I'm, I'm trying my best not to be a grumpy old man and complain about the younger generation, uh, but to see the challenges that they're facing and, and the insights that they bring. I'd like to change gears here a little bit, although it sure seems like we could talk profitably about identity for quite some time. And my heart is just going out to all the struggling people, like literally right out there on the street that I pass, that you can tell they're struggling with their identity just by looking at them, you can see. And to think that something that happened long before they were born could be the rock for them to hold on to in the storms of life, that's what I want for them. However, we're gonna change gears. Let's talk about the New Studies in Biblical Theology volume that you wrote which came to me highly recommended by my most bibliophilic friend and which I actually assigned in an MDiv course that I taught once. It's called Paul and the Law, Keeping the Commandments of God. This is such an important and difficult topic, Paul and the Law, as your book shows. And if the nature of biblical theology is to trace the unfolding revelation of God, it would seem to help rather a lot with a topic like the law because the law quite obviously played a role in Jewish life before Christ that it doesn't play in the Christian life after Christ. So how did the biblical theology angle help you as you examined this topic, Paul and the law? So there are systematic theology solutions to the problem of Paul and the law, if you want to put it that way. So um, uh, you've got the uh, 
um, venerable distinction between different parts of the law. The moral law continues, the mor uh, civil and ceremonial law has been done away with. Um, uh, Reform theology, Lutheran theology, the new perspective, they've all had their own go at solving the puzzle, if you like. So I think the benefit of biblical theology is, is looking, again, very closely at the terms that Paul uses. And when you do that, you realise several things, that he seems to have switched gear in talking to Christians as opposed to Jews on the subject of the law. So in Romans 2, for example, he talks about uh, Jews transgress the law, need to keep the law, obey the law. And uh, I think 2 Corinthians 3, he talks about the law as a legal code, as it's sometimes translated. It's actually the Greek word for letter, law as letter. Um, and then it's very interesting, Paul never says any of that to Christians. He never says that Christians ought to keep, obey, um, or not transgress the law. So that's the what I would call the implicit evidence. And that gives us a hint about the explicit evidence. So the explicit evidence is things like the phrase, believers in Christ are not under the law. So in what sense are we not under the law? And I think uh, good biblical theology goes back to the text and asks questions that are more appropriate to the biblical texts themselves. So my view is that asking which bits of the law continue is the wrong question because Jews and Paul and Jesus regarded the Torah, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, as a unity. I don't think you'll find anywhere in early Judaism a dividing up of the law in those kind of terms that I mentioned earlier. So rather than which bits of the law continue or don't continue, we should, look, we should ask the question, as what? So it's kind of a hermeneutical solution to Paul and the law. And when you ask that question, you find three moves, now this is my view, uh, uh, that Paul makes with respect to the law. The first is he does repudiate the law. He says we're not under the law. The law kills. The law enslaves. We don't need to keep the law, etc., etc. But the question then is as what? We're not under the law as law covenant would be the closest I can get to using Paul's language. Um, and he does seem to replace the law, a second move, with the law of Christ uh, with his own apostolic teaching, uh, with the example and teaching of the Lord Jesus and so on. But we mustn't leave it there because there's a very clear indication that Paul also reappropriates the law to get my third R in. So uh, repudiates, replaces, reappropriates in two ways. The first way is as prophecy of the gospel. So Paul says in Romans 3.21, the law and the prophets testify to the gospel. And in Galatians, he actually says that the law prophesies, scripture prophesies. So I think there's a sense in which the, uh, and many commentators of the Pentateuch have seen this as well. The law does have prophetic elements. It's obviously a multi-genre collection of books, but it is possible to read the law as looking forward to a time of fulfillment with a Davidic king, those kind of ideas. And Paul says they all come together in the Christ event, in the coming of the Lord Jesus. And then right through Romans, as it turns out, he very often uses that pattern. He talks about uh, texts from the law and texts from the prophets to testify to the gospel. So Romans 4, for example, he quotes Genesis 15, 6, uh, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he quotes Psalm 32, uh, David being forgiven. And then there's a second sense in which Paul reappropriates the law, and that is as wisdom for Christian living. Now, when I say that, some people get nervous and think, well, the law doesn't really have any authority. No, I think the law continues to have authority, but we don't interpret the law as in a theocratic way. We're no longer the people of God uh, under the law, so to speak. But we still read the law, and Paul gives examples of this and uses language that uh, is consistent with this. He he looks at the law and uh, reflects on the character of God and the wisdom behind the various laws and stories in the Pentateuch, and then applies them to the Christian life. So when I read the Pentateuch, I don't think I'm an Israelite living under the law, but I'm a believer reading the law as the word of God. I look for Jesus and I look for 
application to my own life in the light of what I read. So I think a biblical theology approach to Paul and the law, and I would say this, is the way to go. It, it really does clarify many of the apparent contradictions on the topic. And everyone points to these. I think at one point, Paul uses uh, the term uh, to repudiate. He says, uh, um, does um, the uh, gospel repudiate the law? At one point, he says no. At another point, he says yes. <laughs> so I don't think he's contradicting himself. It's all about the context. But there's a sense in which Paul can, uh, we, we can grasp Paul's understanding of the topic by taking seriously the negative things about the law that he says and also the positive ways in which he appropriates the law. So my, my example might be something like uh, imagine uh, you're a waiter in a restaurant and uh, you get uh, repudiated or fired uh, and you get replaced, but then you get um, reappropriated, you get rehired as the wine uh, person, I forget the, the the French term for that, and uh, also as the uh, uh, the manager Sommelier. of the store. That's it. Thank you. <laughs> Don't it's ask one of those, one a, of... A, a teetotaler how he knows that word. <laughs> Excellent. I might have exposed you here, Mark. Might be some feedback on this, but I think um, thinking in those terms um, allows us to read Paul's teaching on the law in the most profitable way because we rejoice that the fact we're not under the law, we're not condemned by the law. We look to the authority of Christ, so it's a more intimate, personal uh, relationship which guides our existence as believers, but we still read the Pentateuch as the Word of God, as inspired, and as 2 Timothy 3 says, inspired to correct and train us, all those words are wisdom words, and as as teaching salvation. That's what Paul says uh, in that text as well. So those two things are very clear to me. Once you see it, I get students and, and quite a few people have confirmed this. You read back over Paul's letters and the whole topic really makes a lot more sense. Excellent. Yeah. What more could you want when you come to something difficult in scripture, but to have the help of those teachers Christ gives to his church in Ephesians 4 to get you to see that with clarity. You used some terminology that you came up with, your numbers of R's and the way you broke it all out. Um, I th still think, of course, what you're most fundamentally, do fundamentally doing is trying to expose, to exposit what the text itself is saying. Two words, however, that I hear frequently used everywhere, and I do I did see you use, but not just now. I want to get you to explain these words to us. I'm going to quote to you a line from your own book and have you explain the words continuity and discontinuity. You wrote, the question of continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments is at the heart of many studies of biblical theology. Can you unpack that statement a bit for li listeners who just might not be aware how often those two words get used in these discussions about Paul and the law? Well, what, what that points us to, Mark, is the topic of the use of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And that's such a fundamentally important topic. And it's a mistake to think that the topic is exhausted simply by looking at citations and quotations. It, uh, um, which are sometimes put in bold, for example, in certain Bible versions. That, I, I say to students, uh, the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament is like an iceberg. So at the very top, above the surface, you've got these quotations. But then you've got Old Testament allusions and uh, language and ideas and narratives. Um, and what you've got to avoid is titanic exegesis, uh, just thinking of the Leo DiCaprio movie, uh, where uh, you don't want to crash your, your good ship exegesis by, avoid, uh, by not noticing the iceberg below. Now, continuity and discontinuity, they're very useful terms because it's a reality. Some things in the Old Testament continue uh, unchanged. So much of the moral teaching of Paul, for example, and of Jesus in the New Testament derives from the Old Testament. So the norms of conduct have not changed. So there's an example of continuity, but discontinuity also exists. And there's a sense in which we saw that with Paul and the law. Um, so the, the sacrificial system um, is now uh, obsolete uh, as part of the law covenant, which Paul has repudiated. It's been fulfilled in Christ. So we're looking all the time when we're trying to see the big storyline of the Bible for the elements that continue unchanged and then to notice and celebrate, I would say, the changes. 
So the people of God, if you looked at the topic of the church, it's a good example, actually. The topic of the church doesn't seem like a very big Old Testament theme, but there are so many precursors and presuppositions for the New Testament teaching on the church. And this is an important element of biblical theology I haven't mentioned, namely that concepts are bigger than terms. So when we're looking for a doctrine of the church, in the Old Testament, there are all sorts of concepts that relate to that topic. So the people of God, um, the notion of city, uh, the 12 apostles, the 12 tribes of Israel, all of those things relate to the topic. And uh, kingdom of God is another example. Uh, The kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is not a phrase you find in the Old Testament. But clearly, the notion of God's kingship and the kingship of the Davidic um, uh, descent, uh, the the line of kings, um, in the Psalms, the universal reign of God. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're doing is looking for the terms and concepts that can fill out a topic. And uh, when you do that, you'll, you'll find both elements of discontinuity and continuity. And, th- and that's a helpful kind of tool in the kit. So many helpful tools right there, especially in my mind, distinguishing word and concept is utterly key to any systematic study of the Bible, whether systematic theological or biblical theological, because in order to detect everything the Bible says about joy, for example, or love, you can't just focus on the word study aspect. You have to look at examples in stories which may or may not use the words joy or love. And you're exactly right, of course, about kingdom of God and other themes that you've mentioned. I just can't say how important I think that is. I also cannot really ask questions about every single Brian Rosner book on biblical theology. There are just too many. But I want to go back to the excellent resource that you helped create that I use in Logos Bible Software and have for years, the New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. You wrote a major article on biblical theology in that volume. You helped edit again. But you also wrote smaller articles on the themes of exclusion and idolatry. If my Logos search capabilities are up to snuff, that's what I found. So I wanted to ask, if someone wanted to do biblical theology on his or her own, you know, starting perhaps with comparatively smaller themes such as these, how exactly would you counsel them to go about this? You know, what would their practical steps be to mimic and uh, your work and apply it to some other theme that they're interested in? Well, one of the things I, I tell students, and I think this is um, um, without exaggeration, the key Bible study tool is the concordance. So it's your BFF, if you like. It's your best friend forever in exegesis. Now, um, as we've just noted, terms are bigger than, uh, sorry, concepts are bigger than terms, but you have to start with terms. So the first thing I would do is be to look up the terms. So um, that, that's the first step. The other step is to um, look for the backstory and the story arc, the bigger picture of where things are heading. Um, I, I think um, studying the Bible as we've defined it earlier in in biblical theological terms, is about treating the Bible on its own terms. So it it sounds banal, but reading the Bible is a helpful thing to do when studying any particular theme. And I I would just encourage people to recognise that to do biblical theology, to talk about the big story, the big picture of the Bible, isn't just limited to the kind of classic themes of salvation, kingdom, covenant. So there are many different lenses you can use to tell the Bible story, which include creation, fall, judgment, salvation, but from a different angle. So you could do it with, believe it or not, trees. You could look at uh, the tree of knowledge of good and, and of good and evil and uh, the tree of life, and then the trees turn up in Revelation and Jesus died on a tree. So you've got a lot of uh, um, material there. You could do a biblical theology of clothes, um, of cities. Um, a recent one I read that I really enjoyed was uh, um, Andy Nacelli's book on serpents as a biblical theology team, a theme. Now, remember, serpent and dragon can be kind of connected. So that's where he goes with that. Yeah, so I think thinking creatively and trying to be true to the text are the keys. I was in a PhD program with Andy. I just love and appreciate his work so much. He's 
got so many gifts, and I kind of assumed that he would lean in the super academic direction, and he certainly has that capacity, but his heart to serve the church is evident in that book. I just had to put a little extra plug in for my friend Andy and his book in the in Crossway's little biblical theology series. It's really great. I have to say, I only disagreed with one thing you just said. You used the word concordance. I haven't touched a concordance in I don't know how many years. Because I have Logos Bible software, I can do all that work with a click. Other than that, I totally agree with what you said. I also get to let you off the hook, Dr. Rosner. As you know, I sent you some questions in advance, and the very last one was going to be about, shall we say, a biblical theology of masks, but alas, we have run out of time. I just want to thank you for your insight, for the countless hours that you've poured into writing in order to serve the church, in order to serve me, and frankly, for your your humility, encouraging me to call you Brian, which I just couldn't manage to do, and in giving us this uh, hour of uh, really helpful wisdom and instruction. Dr. Rosner, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mark. What a delightful Bible scholar. I remember a day when I thought of PhDs like him as impossibly inaccessible, I guess because I'd just never heard them talk. But time has shown that the work that men like Rosner do, like the books we discussed in the interview, like a commentary on 1 Corinthians in the Pillar series that's just excellent that I didn't even mention, this work is not done out of some effort to scratch a scholarly itch or impress other scholars but to serve actual people who were abused as kids and need a Christian identity to be winsomely presented to them in terms they can understand and from the Bible. The work that Rosner does is for the church and for non-Christians too. And you can get some of his work, especially that 1 Corinthians commentary and his new dictionary of biblical theology, probably the two works that Rosner helped create that I use the most often personally. You can get them in Logos Bible Software. The NDBT is part of the IVP Black Dictionary series. That whole series is worth having. I bought it with my own money years ago. Same goes for the Pillar New Testament commentary series, which I bought when I had no money as part of the Platinum package. It's also in Logos 9 Gold. You can't listen to this interview and fail to go buy at least one Rosner book. I will not permit it. Thank you for joining us for the third season of the Bible Study Magazine podcast, of which this was the final episode. Subscribe to Bible Study Magazine, where we help you study the Bible with the best tools at BibleStudyMagazine.com. Get a great Logos package at Logos.com slash Bible Study. Do it! I'm your host, Mark Ward, editor of the magazine. I'd like to thank our excellent producer, Kaylee Joyce, who so professionally coordinates interviews for us, and our excellent audio technician and video editor, Jack Underwood, for his faithful and gracious help as well. Tune in next, whenever, Lord willing, for the Bible Study Magazine podcast. <laughs>